0: Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage, where I join Manny Vatcher at the Kowloon Cricket Club. Born in Karachi in 1930, Manny Vatcher is a Parsi who came with her family to Hong Kong in the 1960s in the middle of water shortages and bomb threats. Like the rest of her family, she's passionate about cricket, which made it rather suitable that our interview took place at the Kowloon Cricket
1: Club. I'm Manny Vatcher and been in Hong Kong for almost 52 years. Came here with the family. My husband started working in the private sector to start with and then moved on to civil service. He was the treasury and senior treasury accountant. And I used to work in the private sector, Lobingham and Matthews. I was one of the supervisors in the special department where we used to be in charge of... 30, 40 shelf companies to do accounting, auditing, company secretarial work, the lot for those small companies. Some of them were shelf companies. We had a team of bookkeepers and all under our supervision. And what year did you come to Hong Kong? Well, my husband came in late 66. And about six months later, I joined him in 67 with the children. That was an interesting time to come to Hong Kong. Yeah. Sixty-seven. My younger twins were two years old and my eldest was ten. And uh, the middle one was five years old. And in those days, there was water shortage. We used to get four hours of water once in four days. And we had to manage with the family. And we had to store up the water in bathtubs and whatnot. And water containers, tubs and things like that were at at a premium. (laughs) Yes, I would imagine the place sold out, you know. Yeah, they would all sold out. Apart from that, we used to have the bomb scare. You know, parcels used to be left in parks and roads and things like that. And the specialists had to come and detonate them some would be real bombs and the others would be fake you know but all the same we had to be so careful about our children playing in the public parks and all that it must have been very worrying very worrying very worrying uh, so although there was many places where we could take the children we used to avoid and just bring them over to kcc
0: to the Kowloon Cricket Club. Yeah, the Kowloon yeah, so that's, Cricket Yes, that's where we're sitting today. So
1: this is really, really your second home for decades. <laughs> yeah, yes. If you wanted to go to Hong Kong side, you had to take Star Ferry. Or you take your car and go across from Yamati to, at the moment where Macau Ferry Pier is, somewhere in that vicinity would be the Hong Kong side terminus. So we would go by the car ferry. Car ferry would stop at about one thirty or something in the night and star ferry would about 11. So if we went out on Hong Kong side on a night out, we had to return. And in those days, when we went on a night out, we really dressed up. You know, it was no casual. You know, night out means, you know, either wearing a nice gown and, you know, dolling yourself up. <laughs> Or we would wear saris and all that, to heels, and then we would have to come back by the walla wallas. And the walla wallas from across, uh, from Hong Kong side, um, City Hall, there was a pier, I, I can't remember the name of the pier. From there we had to walk down the stone steps and all that and get into those walla walla launches and we'd come across on hong kong side where the clock tower is the other side of it you know because all that used to be the railway station and all so we get down there so that was the only mode of transport or spend the night with your friends in hong kong <laughs>
0: <laughs> so home on the walla walla in your stilettos yeah
1: so that used to be quite adventurous and where would you go out well we used to go out to different places you know For dinners and dancing, most of the places used to have band and all. One place used to be called Bistro Go Down, which was a building next to Hong Kong Club. So it was a big band, big band swing music? Well, it wasn't a very big band, either a quartet or a quintet or something like that, but it would be live band. They used to have at China Fleet Club, used to have the Molly's Music Hall, which would be like a review.
0: So a review of music hall numbers or numbers actually that were in the 60s and
1: 70s? Well, it used to be a mixture of everything, you know, the old tunes and all that also. I was lucky in the sense that we had a Chinese armour who was working for us, who was English-speaking. And in those days there were no restrictions about bringing domestic helpers, so... The girl who was working for us in India, we came from Bombay, so the girl who was working for us in Bombay, I asked her if she would like to come along with us. So when I joined my husband with the children, we sailed out. So she came along with me and she served me for three years and then she went back. By that time, the children were a bit grown up and uh, we were able to get someone else again. From India. So I always had one Chinese armor and one one Indian armor. What made you decide to come to Hong Kong? Well, we got married in nineteen fifty-six. At that time after independence in India, Nehru had all those five-year plans, the thing and movement was very restricted. To go out of India to travel, you had to get foreign exchange and the Reserve Bank would give you a very limited amount of money. And my husband's background, his grandfather, maternal grandfather, was originally from Persia, from Tehran. And he had moved to Shanghai for trade purposes. And they had silk mills and all that. So when my husband was about nine, ten years old, After his confirmation ceremony, what we Parsis call Naujot Ceremony, the mother took him to Shanghai to meet the grandparents. At that time, my husband's grandfather was very ill, almost on his deathbed. And the war broke out, and the Japanese joined the war in 1941. So everybody said, Kitty, go back to India to your family because this is the last sailing to India. There won't be any more sailings. So she refused, she says, China, you know, China, Japan was going on for so many years and all that, nothing, you know. So I'm not going, leaving my father on his deathbed. And that was the last sailing. And they were stuck till end of the war in Shanghai. So my husband's formative years were in Shanghai. So his outlook was quite different from children who grew up in India. With the result that when all these restrictions came, he was very uneasy. So he wanted to get out of India. But he wanted to go to a place where there was cricket. (laughs) Because he always used to tease me to say, cricket is my first love. My second love (laughs) is my wife. And the third love is my car. (laughs) Do you like cricket? Oh, I love cricket because I also grew up in a family where my father used to play tennis and my uncles used to... Play cricket and used to captain the Chibgana teams and things like that. So I also grew up in a sport loving family. So when I was in university, I started doing scoring for the university, our college team, you know. So I got involved in it. And when we came here also in Hong Kong for good. 20 years, I twenty twenty odd years, I used to score for the Saturday afternoon Saturday League games.
0: So it's quite apt that we're sitting here at Kowloon Cricket Club. Yeah, yeah.
1: so Kowloon Cricket Club has been a second home to us. <laughs> Yeah, so I used to do the scoring and... Your husband my, would play? Yeah, my husband would play, then my son started, you know, the eldest son started playing, and then my elder son's son, the grandson started playing. So I'm happy and proud to say that our family, the Bacha family, is the only family in the history of Hong Kong where three generations on the trot have represented... Hong Kong in national games. That's very impressive. Mm, Because my husband used to play, at that time, of course, it was representing colony. My eldest son used to play, also representing colony. And then my grandson used to play in different junior groups, you know, started playing from Under-11s, under-13s, under-15s, under-17s, under-19s. And some of the age groups, I can't remember exactly what. He'd captained also the Hong Kong team, the junior teams, of course. So you you were born and grew up in Bombay? Uh, My husband was born and grew up in Bombay. Well, till the age of 10, he grew up in Bombay, and then Shanghai, and then back to uh, Bombay for university, when... Uh, The Indian government chartered a ship to repatriate all the Indian nationals who were stranded in Shanghai. But I was born in Karachi at that time, undivided India. But for university education, I moved to Bombay. And what did you study? I did my commerce and accounting degree. So how many years was that? Well, my husband was also there in the same batch and we passed our become this thing in 1951. You then started to become a young mum at that point or were you also working? No, no, I, was, I was working and uh, we got married in 56 because my husband did his chartered accountants and at that time they were so prejudiced against the ladies that I wanted to do my chartered accountancy. But in those days, the chartered accountants firms were very small. three partners, or maximum a firm like in India, firm like Ferguson's, which is a counterpart of now Deloitte's, previously Pete Marwick or Price Waterhouse. Each partner was allowed to take three article clerks to do the article shipping. And one of the firms belonged to our professor. And he turned around and told me, he says, Money, I don't doubt that you will not be able to complete your chartered accountancy, but you, like other girls, will work for a few years, get married, have a family, and spoil the chance of a boy. So I'm sorry, I will not give you admission. So after graduating, I spent one year trying to get admission, and then, very frustrated, I started working. And... My husband did his charted, and after that he started working. And once he started working, and once he, after probation and all that, once he was confirmed and all, and we could stand on our own feet, then in '56 we got married. <laughs> Tell me about your wedding. Well, it was just a normal <laughs> Parsi wedding. Ours was, by comparison, a modest one. Uh, it's about 200 odd guests. Right? A modest one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Whereas, the proper pricey weddings would be 700,000 guests, <laughs> like the Indian weddings, you know. So yeah. yeah. So you got married in Bombay. I we got married in Bombay. Yeah. And what did you wear? Uh-huh. sorry Yeah. So, so we used to, in those days, and even now, all the wedding saris and all that are you know made to order embroidered hand embroidered and all that
0: yeah because the part of the you know what you've been telling me that with the saris and also with the children's clothes that some of it was made with silk but also with this embroidery that was done in china
1: can you tell me about that Uh, you see in those days Some of the entrepreneur parties in in the 1800s, they used to trade with China. They started with opium trade, and they switched over to silks, export, you know, import of silks and things like that from China. And all the embroidered saris and, and the little tunic for children and all that were all imported from China you've been showing me today that, that, I mean, some of it, I mean, it's stunning, and it's
0: the items that you've been showing to me today are nearly 90 years old, probably. Oh,
1: yeah, more 90 or even more, more than 90, because my grandmother gave me one of the saris, which I wore for my children's wedding and all that, and she gave it to me when my first one was born, and she must have had it in her camphor chest for ages, you know. So they could be 90 or... More than a century old. And they have also, I mean, the the embroidery you were saying was like French knot. um. Uh, Different types of embroidery, especially the, the small ones like the children's tunics and things like that were all made with French knots. And the saris and all, because they had to cover six yards, would be done in satin stitch and all that. And there used to be loads and loads of sari borders, which were also imported from there. Those were also either French knot with some silver or gold thread in it or satin stitch ones. But they're beautifully embroidered. And, and nine sim- was nine, it- nine yards of those sari borders which would skirt round the six yards of sari. The bottom and the side and the top. Yeah.
0: I noticed there was like bird
1: motifs also uh, yeah. Yeah. Floral birds. And some of, them, some of them were even from China, so they used to have little Chinese men and women and the river scenes and things like that also. And this is quite rare now, is it? It's really very rare. And in India, it's sought after not only by the Parsis, but by the Indian community also. And they fetch quite a good... You know, they're sought after, and these days, the younger generation wants to wear skirts and tops and slacks and things like that and sarees going out of fashion except for certain special occasions with the result that the younger generation is not in, interested in these heirlooms with the result that some of them they try to sell them off and they fetch quite a good price mm.
0: so you have four sons yes. now one of the items that you showed me today was a tunic and you said that you know with young children also that They would have. There was at the front and back was a feature on these this material.
1: Oh yeah. What I said was that amongst us Zoroastrians, Parsis, when we have our confirmation ceremony and take the child into the religion, that is where we have our holy garment, which is made out of white muslin cloth, which is for purity, and that has got symbolic pockets in front and at the back and it's a belief that you collect your good deeds in that. And then sort of a string made out of lamb's wool representing innocence. It's woven with 72 threads which corresponds to the 72 chapters of our scriptures and that is tied round three times on the waist which is symbolic of our three basic tenets of the religion, good thoughts, good words, good deeds. If you have good thoughts, you will come out with good words, and if you have good words, you would do good deeds. And that is ingrained in us. And normally the child is taken into the religion when they are of an understandable age, say, from the age of 7 onwards up to age of 11. Normally it is done before the puberty, but the child has to be of understandable age Mm. to understand that once they're brought into the religion, they've got to follow the tenets of the religion.
0: In the 1960s when you came, now the, the actual Parsi premises was just two stories.
1: Yeah. It was just two stories and in 1990 they made a decision to bring the building down and redevelop it. That time for three years, two or three years, whilst the building was being built, uh, we had moved into temporary rented accommodation and we had our activities there in that rented accommodation and one room was dedicated to our prayer hall and our priest used to live there. And then in 1993... 21st of March. That is the Vernal Equinox, which is supposed to be. It's called now. Rose means New Year. So that is the time we moved into the new provinces, which is the current provinces about 22 stories high, and it's called the Zoroastrian Building. And where at, is that? At at the corner of Leighton Road, 101 Leighton Road. So in Causeway Bay. In Causeway Bay, yeah. It's just across the uh, Cook. Ah, yes. yes. So you have a social area for the Parsis, you have your yes. temple area? So out of the 22 floors, our third floor is a social hall where we have our functions and we have our ceremonial functions also in the sense that if we are to do a wedding or a confirmation like now ceremony or something, we do it on the third floor. The fourth floor has got a patio and all that. So we have sort of social functions there also with the patio. I mean, the younger generation sometimes have a barbecue and things like that there. So both the third and the fourth floor are for the community use. Fifth floor, we've got our prayer hall. And sixth floor is our residence of the priest and the resident uh, chef and the helper. uh, So that's the Parsi club, is it? Yeah, who are brought over from India on contract basis.
0: Oh, great. So you've got the real deal on the Parsi food.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So our figure has been hovering around 250. When we first came, it used to be under 200, you know, 100 and something. But there have been families who've been here for generations. And then there are the others who come and are here to stay, like our family, for 50 odd years. And there are some young professionals who come here. They're posted here in banks and various other places. And some of them are pretty transient, you know. They come here for a contract of three years, renew it for another three years. Some of them stay on, some of them move on, you see. But then others come, so the figure always remains more or less 250. And we're quite close-knit community, which is more like a family. We have about 20-odd functions in a year. Some of them are memorial dinners where funds are donated by the families. And some of them are festive ones like our New Year, our Prophet Lord Jesus' birthday, death anniversary. Our calendar is 12 months and each month is 30 days. And the 12 months and the 30 days, it's not like first, second, third. They are dedicated to angels and archangels and things like that. So when there is the month of a particular angel, or the guardian angel of water, or the guardian angel of fire, and the day also is represented. So it is the day and the month of that particular guardian angel of fire, or water, or whatever it is. So those are the days, guardian angel of all souls, those are the days where they have some sort of a celebratory dinner also. And apart from that, we have a little social hall committee where volunteers of ladies, you know, they organize once a fortnight, a couple of times in a month, they organize some sort of a dinner and they've taken interest in introducing different cuisines. This month we are having Thai or this month oh, we, are, okay. we are having are So it's Spanish. not always Parsi food? No. For the community dinners organised by the association are usually Parsi dinners. But when the social hall committee organises the dinners, they are contributory dinners, although they have been subsidised by the association as well. So those dinners, the ladies are being you know, taking more interest in it and introducing different cuisines. Uh So sometimes Mexican or sometimes (laughs) Thai, different nationality, they introduce that.
0: Tell me about, I mean you don't have to tell me right across the Parsi cuisine but what do you like cooking that's Parsi?
1: Well our Parsi, the most known Parsi dish is supposed to be dhansak. Dansak is a sort of a caramelized fried rice served with dal, which is mixed with various vegetables. A few different types of dals mixed with vegetables, all boiled with some sort of meat, either chicken or lamb or whatever it is. And then it is, you know, different spices and things like that are fried and put in that and boiled in that and that's a very spicy meat dish which you eat on top of the caramelised rice. Many a times for festive occasions, they have the same dal without any meat and they serve it with rice which has been made like a lamb biryani or a mutton biryani or something like that. Because it's quite meat based, we, isn't it? And yeah, and we call that mutton palau or chicken palau or something like that. That is a signature Parsi dish. Another one is the Parsi Custard, which is called the Parsi Lagannu Custard, which is normally served for weddings. And it is a very, very rich custard with a lot of full cream milk, which has been boiled and boiled and boiled and thickened with eggs and all sorts of nuts. Right? Wow, that sounds rich. And it is really a rich, thick custard, <laughs> which they cut into pieces. Oh, wow, Solid. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it is It is pretty this thing, you know, they cut into pieces and then they serve that. And these are the two definite Parsi's signature dishes, Sounds and, the other, and the other signature dishes of the Parsis, Parsis can't do without eggs. They must have eggs for breakfast. <laughs> and as side dish, they must have eggs on different types of vegetables. They cook the base of the different types of vegetables, like potato base, or, of course, spice a little, potato, or tomato, or okra, or spinach, you know, various types of vegetables. The base is there, and on top of that, they either beat up the eggs and put them on top, or they put the whole egg sunny side up, and they serve it. So that is supposed to be another, you know, so, Parsis must have eggs. <laughs> and even for breakfast, they must have either scrambled eggs or fried eggs, sunny side up, or they have a Parsi omelette, which is the chopped up onions, tomatoes, coriander, some spice, you know, turmeric, chilies, chili powder, you name it, that's all. And a fluffy omelette is made, or we have our Parsi scrambled egg, which is called a curry. So for that also, we make onion, garlic, ginger, tomato, green chilies. All these we make a, we fry all that and make a, a mixture, and then we whip up the eggs with milk, and then you make scrambled it, and that is supposed to be another signature dish. Many a families, if they don't have it for breakfast, they have it for a side dish for dinner. They call it a curry on toast, yeah, okay. <laughs> like scrambled eggs on toast, <laughs> okay. so akin to that. But these, these are the real signature dishes, you see. And then for festive occasions, they make dan dal and patio. So they give serve white rice with just plain yellow dal, you know, and on top of it, they make a mixture of the... Uh, spicy tomato mixture and basically it is supposed to be with fish or prawns or something like that. So that is served for festive occasions. And another wedding festive dish is called patrani machi. Patra means leaves. So in banana leaves, they have slices of fish usually palm with spicy chutney. It's a green chutney made out of coriander and green onion and a little bit of coconut and all the spices. And they wrap those like parcels. The chutney, the fish on both sides and then wrapped up in parcels. And then they...
0: And what do you wrap them up in, banana leaves? Banana leaves.
1: Banana leaves, they wrap it up and then they steam it and then they serve the whole parcels as such at the table and you're supposed to remove the leaves and eat the fish and the chutney which is really yummy (laughs) (laughs) does it make your mouth water (laughs) i'm hungry
0: my thanks to mani there introducing me to Parsi traditions and customs and the beautiful embroidery that fortunately is still being kept as superb pieces of cultural heritage I'm hoping to meet up with one of Manny Vatcher's sons later in the year to do a programme on Kowloon Cricket Club. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.